we're not removing jobs, we're removing job wrecks I can't fill. <laughs> and and oh. what we're doing is instead of saying, hey, there's 10 people and eight of them are always churning, there's four people and they're paid to have it be a career now. So, which is sort of your point, which is it, it, you take something and you say, we're not eliminating humans or saying we don't need humans. We're saying we need fewer of them. And that means I can actually pay them better and have lower turnover, which is great for everyone. So I, I do think there's sort of a silver lining to technology. It's not about welcoming our robot overlords. It's really about saying, how do we take something that's sort of transactional, like being a leasing agent and make it a career? Hey folks, this is Clayton Collins, CEO at HW Media. And today's episode has it all. We talk about the rental market across the United States, single family rentals, multifamily. We talk about prop tech. We talk about SPACs. We talk about M&A and the entrepreneurial journey. I had a fascinating conversation with Smart Rent CEO, Lucas Haldeman. Folks, this conversation is really interesting. I know we usually talk about mortgage financing and, and real estate brokerage, but this episode dives into the rental market and provides some perspectives that I think are really important to all of our understanding of the overall housing economy. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Lucas. I know I did. And if you find some value, please go to iTunes or, or Apple Podcasts, I think it's the official name, and uh, rate the show. Leave us some comments. We read them, we react, and we make the show better. Thanks again. Enjoy the episode. Hey, folks. And now a quick message from our housing news podcast sponsor, Radiant Title Services. You hear the term blockchain show up more and more in the real estate industry. But what does it mean for lenders and homeowners? And how does servicing work when funding mortgages from the blockchain? Radiant's title insurance and closing services platform, Title Genius, answers these questions with a blockchain-enabled online portal that gives you simple pricing, smarter processes, more transparency, and superior service. Visit MyTitleGenius.com. And if you're a real estate agent, there's a link right on the landing page with specific knowledge for you. Check out MyTitleGenius.com for more information. Lucas, I'm thrilled to, to have you on, on Housing News. We do so many episodes focused on mortgage origination execs and real estate brokerage execs, but the rental market, both single-family rental and multifamily, have been such important parts of the over, overall housing ecosystem. I thought this would be a fun conversation to dig into your focus around building smart rent um, in the rental market, and some of the things you're learning from your from your clients and and partners as we kind of navigate this this housing market, which uh, you know has been which has been rapid and and uncertain at the same time. <laughs> it certainly has, yeah, yeah. All right, cool. Well, um, I want to like spend some of the time in this episode learning about smart rent, but I also want to kind of dig in to the to the housing market, and I know that. Um, like you guys have been busy. You've, uh, you've you've gone public, made made some big executive hires. I think put some of that public equity to work with some acquisitions. So I'm excited to dig into those. But I want to really kind of start out with checking in on on your view, checking the temperature of the the state of the rental market, and uh, kind of how you're seeing the rental market perform at this at this time where at Housing Wire we're covering a mortgage origination market which has had a. Uh, a big drop off in application volume, but still has some characteristics that are strong. And we're seeing home prices hold steady and that, uh, that, that plays a role in how the market performs in the long term. But so the current state of the rental market, I want to give you the floor to kind of address what you're seeing in, in the market that you serve. 
Yeah, no, I, I think it's I think it's interesting because a lot of times people talk about the real estate market as if it's one thing, and it's actually a lot of different things, as you're as you're sort of alluding to, which is, yeah, if, if I was if I was living off of, of record low rates and refining paper, I, I'm in I'm in a lot of trouble. But the rental side, it's you know, it's not that rising rates don't have an impact on owners' ability to buy. Certainly, they do. But where we get more focused is what's going on with rents. So. I don't actually see stress in the rental market until rates are rising and rents are dropping. You know, so if, if and right now what we're seeing is rents are rising. I mean, we are we are dealing with record inflation. That's not that's not new to anyone, but that's also pressuring rents up. And so if your if your marginal cost of capital is up forty or fifty bips, which is which is a pretty big jump from where you were buying, you're muting that by saying, Yeah, but I just got twenty percent or fifteen percent same store growth out of rent. And so we we're seeing on the on the acquisition side no slowdown in acquisitions no pressure on cap rates on the other side the inverse of people buying homes is where do the, what do they do well i can i can live with mom but and and we did some of that in in a way but most people just say well i'll stay i'll stay renting and so we're seeing demand stay really high for rentals uh, especially in in sort of markets like where 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 we've seen a lot of a lot of population growth so i feel like there is some some stress on the real estate market, certainly on mortgage. It looks to me from the data I've been seeing, and, and you guys track this close to me, but it looks like we're seeing, you know, maybe home prices flatten out. We're not seeing any of that in, in rentals. It's it's an incredibly robust market. Do you do you focus on the the multifamily side, or are you working across SFR and and multifamily? We work across all of it. Um, you know, my background before starting Smart Rent, I was in single-family rentals. I was the CTO of, of Colony Starwood Homes before we sold it to Invitation. And so, one of the things that that was sort of a personal pet peeve is is I talk to to vendors and or, or potential technology partners and say, "Oh, well, we focus on multifamily." I was like, "Well, because I have a garage, like you can't work with me." And so, from day one, our platform has been really focused on broadly on rentals. Certainly, there's a bigger institutional ownership in the U.S. of multifamily than single family. Single family is, is still growing. Uh, you know, we, we really started that business 10 years ago, uh, whereas multifamily has been going for, for 35, 40 years or, or longer. But yeah, no, for, for our, our, our product set and what we do, probably look across rentals. And I, what I think is a, an interesting trend that we're seeing is more and more multifamily operators are starting to think about, well, why don't I just own some single family? Um, as one of the trends we're seeing in multifamily is this idea of, of potting and saying, maybe I don't need a maintenance team and a leasing team at every single property. <laughs> maybe we could say, hey, these are kind of close to each other. Once you open that door, then you say, well, now why don't I draw a circle around this property and say, I could own some single family homes in here too. Yeah. Hey, I'll, I'll knock on wood for a single family rental home or rent growth. I'm, um, my team's busted my chops that this is summer Clayton right now with a couple of days of growth and a, and a sweaty polo shirt on, but it's, it's really, um, single family rental renovation Clayton. I'm, I'm up in Massachusetts right now, uh, trying to get a, a property re- ready, ready to market on August 1st then <laughs> on for, on the, on the personal side. But, uh, it's, oh, that's a, great. Um, yeah, not, not, not just a housing media guy. Also, um, playing a, playing an investor role, at least, uh, in a very, very small way. Let's get smart right in there for you while you're doing your remodel. Well, uh, as soon as we stop recording, I'll get your credit card info. Sounds good. This is, um, this is actually a vendor evaluation call under the guise of a podcast <laughs> episode. So everybody, uh, <laughs> well, stay tuned. Well played. Well played, Clayton. <laughs> 
So, all right. So, Lucas, let, let, let's go a little bit deeper. So, um, are you? So, you mentioned that you're not really seeing a change of behavior in the acquisition side. Um, are you seeing any like flight to quality? People like going Class A that used to do Class B. Like, are we seeing any change in like the type of asset that's getting the most attention or investment in this stage of the market? No, I, I think the great equalizing factor is we still have household formation outpacing delivery, uh, still an overhang from, from the mortgage crisis. And so, uh, no, we're not seeing, seeing like, Oh, it's a, it's a flight to quality or stay out of these markets. We've actually seen it open through the pandemic. People who were sort of fleeing for the coasts, I'll say <laughs> politely are now looking at, at, at broadening their buy box. And, and because demand is, has stayed high, all we're sort of hearing is, is people are sort of expanding that buy box and actually looking at, at other opportunities where they think they could be successful. Interesting. Okay. So expanding the buy box, is that, does that play across geographies too? Or people like you mentioned the pod structure and SFR, does that mean like your, your Dallas investors are like, Oh crap, we're getting priced up here. Let's, let's go look at, um, Houston and, uh, I don't know, other Southeastern markets. Yeah. We've been seeing that for, for years now. I mean, that's not necessarily a new trend, but yeah, absolutely. To say, yeah. where is their growth? Where do people want to live? And so buy box can be geography and geography can mean a couple of things. Like you're saying, it could be Dallas versus Houston. It could also be uh, one neighborhood versus another neighborhood, you know, and a school district versus another school district. So there's sort of that micro geography. And then also it's, it's just type and type and quality that we're seeing people expand on. If you're sort of, you know, it's like if, if you go to the store and you want to buy apples, but there's no apples, suddenly you're a buyer of oranges <laughs> out of necessity, right? And that's some of what we're seeing. So last week I had uh, John Burns from John Burns Real Estate Consulting on on Housing News, and we spent a lot of time talking about how there's not necessarily a national housing market. It's a collection of a, a lot of local housing markets and when we talk about health of the housing market, John sees uh, very divergent outcomes for, for different markets in the U S and some markets where we might be able to anticipate home price growth or at least stability and others where we see a decline. How are acquirers and lenders like underwriting deals differently in, in different markets? Are they, are they, are they kind of applying potential flat like rent growth in certain parts of the U S but comfortable with underwriting like continued growth and in, in other regions. Yeah. I mean, most of where, most of where we are, we're still seeing tremendous demand and population growth. And so actually I, I really like uh, John Burns data. I think it's, I think it's fantastic. And so I think a lot of people, I don't think I'm alone in that. I think a lot of people like it and kind of look at that. And, and I think that's what we're, we're trying to balance is, you know, if, if Phoenix is suddenly a three cap market, which is which is pretty impressive for, you know, a, 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 and I'm in Phoenix. But so like that's a that's a pretty impressive cap rate. I still don't think you're going, you know, to to tertiary markets where you, you're in a in a five. You know, I don't I don't see that happening, that people are sort of staying more disciplined and and looking for, you know, sort of waiting for it to come back to them. Interesting. So how do we like we like. Let's move to the renter kind of behavior side for a second. We, we published some research. It was a, based off a survey with one of our clients, Maxwell, that um, at least in the last quarter, they were starting to see survey data from renters that 51% were in, intended to or were driving to buying a home. And uh, I anticipate that that's probably changed a little bit with the increase in rates. But as we think about the market run right now, where, where renters or or prospective renters are kind of hit by both 
on all sides from rising rates, rent, rent price growth and and inflation. Are you starting to see any or your clients starting to see any changes in behavior from renters, like maybe different demographics or different household size or different demand for different types of uh, inventory? Like what, what changes are we seeing on the renter side? Well, and, and not to go sort of promotional of smart rent because that's not my intent, but it is one of the things that we're seeing is, is owners are having a, a willingness to put in the smart technology because it's a real benefit to the renter. Renters love it. They get the app on their phone. They get the modern living you know, lifestyle we're used to living in, in single-family homes. And part of the reason we've seen an openness of owners to do that, they have, they have their whole ROI side of how they save money, how they better protect their assets, but it's also helping them sort of grease the skids to get rent increases. You know, Because it's not just saying, hey, in, in January it was X, in, in February it's now X plus 20%. Which, which is pretty hard to stomach as a, as an end customer, just to even like seeing anything go up in that price is sort of hard, hard to stomach, let alone rent, which is typically your biggest expense. But so they're saying, hey, what we're going to come in, we're doing this smart package, we're, we're upgrading your unit. And that does also have a, a, a bump in rent. But it, it gives it gives renters something a reason of why am I why am I seeing this increase? I'm getting some value out of it myself. And so it can, it can be helpful in, in that way. Uh, you know, to bro- more broadly answer the question, you know, no, I don't. I don't think. I think we're seeing rent growth happening at the same time we're seeing wage growth. At the same time, we're ha- seeing you know gas prices go up, although they've kind of come down a little bit. And that that so most renters, it's 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 easier to stay where you are, and and you're priced out of most single family homes, and and so that it's easier to stay where you are and just and be be a renter. That that makes sense. One of the things that has always frustrated me about analysis of the rent affordability of rent is the assumption that rental households are, are often like single income households. And, uh, I, 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 you know, you always see the headlines that rent costs X and household incomes are Y. How can, how can this be sustainable? Well, I mean, at least in, when I reflect on my renting days, I was always, uh, always had a roommate or, um, spouse that was like dual income. And, uh, do you see an increased like demand or requirement for rental inventory that can accommodate more roommates or accommodate the work from home scenario of dual income households? Is are some of those kind of workforce and, and demographic trends playing out in in the rental market? Yeah, we're seeing we're seeing a lot of that. I mean, one sort of macro trend that I'd share is there's a much greater focus on incredibly good internet at every unit, <laughs> which which actually sounds like you're like what. Isn't that already the case? And no, unfortunately, it's not across the board. And so I think that is a direct result of this work from home and the pandemic is to say, you know, offering three megabit DSL is now not annoying. It's actually hurting you. It's hurting your ability to, to lease and, and to rent. Other side of it is we're seeing a lot of common area get converted into into sort of Zoom rooms, I call them, you know, where it's where it's like, hey, you don't want to be in your apartment because you're right. There may be two people trying to work for the same apartment. That can be awkward to try to be on dueling Zoom calls. And so you have that, you know, down in the common area instead of a big game room with a TV that that seems to be lightly occupied, you're seeing four or five Zoom rooms come in that people can reserve. So I, I think I do believe that our, our multifamily customers, you know, multifamily housing operators in the U.S., are very good at adapting and looking at trends and understanding where, where things are going uh, to that institutionally managed. And then, and then the rest of the industry kind of follows the institutional managers. I imagine bad internet also impacts operators ability to 
and introduce solutions like smart rent. You're, I imagine you're putting like other devices on the network that need to draw from bandwidth. And uh, that's got to be a, like a headache if you're in a, a bad internet building, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, I think I think our specific solution was designed to not need Wi-Fi. So so it's a it's a good but but broadly taking the point, I totally agree, which is everything we're trying to do in the future with our with our maintenance teams and mobile maintenance and all these all these business, you know, changes in the business model. The precursor is there's high quality, good Internet everywhere you go. You know, so so it does no good. And not me at SmartRent, but if I'm your rental operator, one of our customers, if I invest in these in these golf carts and, and mobile maintenance so that that they can go out and they don't have to go back and forth and back and forth, it all falls apart. There's no Internet. Right. If I can't get the next work order, because I have to go back to the shop to get the work order. I didn't need to invest in all this all this great technology. So, yes, I think I think not only for residents and saying, hey, we need we need this to be. This is part of how we work now these days, but also for the staff to be able to do their job. Let me guess, housing market uncertainty has you guessing what's around the corner. It's the reason we created Housing Wire Annual. Housing Wire Annual is where the community from across the housing ecosystem comes together to share strategies, drive business, discover new technologies, discuss best practices, and meet industry leaders. With four different tracks, including mortgage, real estate, valuation, and title, our agenda is power-packed with content to propel your company to the next level and connect you with the industry playmakers. Join us October 3rd through 5th at the Fairmont Princess in Scottsdale, Arizona. Head to housingwireannual.com to secure your spot now and use code PODCAST20 for 20% off tickets. Okay, so you gave us a little glimpse into your um, your background as a in the in the SFR space. Tell us more about kind of your your path to smart rent, the the origin story. Sure. Yeah. So I, I mean, when when I came to Colony American Homes, you know, we had a few thousand homes, and it was it was in 2012, and we're right in the middle of sort of the 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 thawing of the of the mortgage crisis. And the great news was there was a 40 to 50% house sale on housing, right? Like, like house prices were down significantly. Uh, but we really had to figure out how do you make a, a durable operating platform under this? Because there are challenges that when your units are homes and they don't touch each other, you know, and, and we, you start buying a scatter plot box um, that, that you have, you have challenges there. And so broadly speaking, not just where I was, but other companies doing this, we all, had to really embrace technology, that that was the savior. If you sort of say, why didn't the single family rental industry exist before 2012? You know, one of the primary reasons was mobile and cloud computing. You know, it would have been way too expensive to do that. But that with the innovations we'd had in, in mobile technology, I could have uh, I could have a P&L that looked like a peer in the apartment world, you know, and that but we did that by saving on labor and, and embracing technology. And so the the realization that I had is, oh, as a single family operator, I was kind of forced to go be innovative because I had to make this this math work. But every apartment operator also wants to be, you know, improving their expense side and increasing their their income. And that's where I really got the idea to start SmartRen and say, you know, we don't have to say this is only for single family things like self guided tour where you don't have to meet a leasing agent. Things like monitoring and and putting in emergency work orders for water damage. And the one I mentioned earlier, which is even just a resident being able to unlock their door remotely or let let the Amazon driver in to drop a package or or turn their thermostat down if they forgot they went to work, that all these are are well not 
multifamily wasn't forced into there, they really were going to benefit from it. And and that's why we started Smart Rent was to bring the knowledge and understanding we had of of this new way of being a renter and bring it to, broadly to to multifamily and single family. I, I think it's fascinating that you mentioned that one of the reasons SFR didn't exist in its current state pre-2012 was, was cloud computing. I've always given credit to the fact that we needed a market with a 40 or 50% reduction in purchase prices to get the attention of institutional capital to actually make it an asset class. And that that assumption that I had has always kind of scared me about the, the sustainability of the growth of the single family rental market and that capital would get um, cautious when you had to pay market rate for, for single family assets. Um, and maybe rent growth was the saving grace there, but is that a, is that a perspective that you share or how, how have you thought about like the sustained opportunity and growth of SFR? Yeah, actually. So I actually agree with, with, with your point as well, which is uh, two things had to happen. There had to be a massive disruption <laughs> as an entry point. And there had to be mobile and cloud computing. But what what and why is it durable going forward? Because because I do agree with that is because when there was that huge sale and, and rents were also down, now you have rent growth. Now you have HPA that actually allowed you to pay for building out the platforms. We all had to build our platforms out. And so we took advantage of of capital being interested because there was distress and there was a disruption. That's what attracted the capital. And, but then that gave us the time because it was such a discount to say, Let's go build the platform. And even before I left and started Smart Rent, we're at the point where mostly what we bought was market rate off the MLS, and it had the, it all penciled out. It had great characteristics, great long-term characteristics. And and really, if you look at the companies that started early that are still around, Invitation Homes, the Tricons, the American Homes for Rent, you know, they now have built up a, a portfolio of real estate that was very hard to duplicate. That, to me, is why I think we're seeing a trend now to say, build to rent. So I think you'll continue to see people be successful. Progress is another one I should mention there who had a, of an incredible portfolio that those are going to be very hard to replicate. Um, the HPA has been fantastic. The rent growth has been fantastic. And now you're seeing people say, well, what if we, what if people like the single family product? What I don't like about single family as an operator is that there is no density, but what if you put those together and now we have this, this build to rent getting going which I think is 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 really interesting and, and takes a lot of the headache out of single family operations. What remains is the product that has demand that users want. They want the yard, they want the garage, they want that living experience. And, and so I think that's going to be a really interesting trend going forward. Yeah, I uh, we we did a magazine cover story. I think it was 2017 or early 18. Build the rent on the cover of, of Housing Wire, and uh, I'm gonna have to link to that in the show notes and and fact check ourselves on uh, if if we were directionally right and which way that market was was going. But so t- t- today, single family rental and build the rent has has grown so much. I think it's captured the attention of housing advocates and regulators, and it's like the last six and 12 months as we look at like really low inventory, like fingers keep getting pointed at the SFR market as like a, one of the the contributors there. And I've, I've seen data points kind of depending on how the, how it's calculated that SFR buyers purchase 3% of available inventory or 30% of available inventory. I'm sure it's somewhere between there, but I've seen wildly different estimates of like what actually transpired over the last 12 months. Um, do, do you think that, like regulators or advocates could have any impact on kind of future growth for the the build to rent story if we continue in a market where inventory is so constrained. Yeah, I I think 
the single family rental operators broadly get painted with a with a pretty bad brush in that light and it's not fair it's just not actually the case it, i can tell you and 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 you know you can have you can have john burns back on and fact check me but it, i don't think it's anywhere near 30 percent. and I, I think what people don't bring into that equation is what we're at the the end user of that product the renter doesn't want or can't afford the alternative. <laughs> and so yeah. and maybe a, a luxury apartment in a metropolitan area. Yeah. Like this is this is an alternative right. to that. And maybe some of and, and and maybe some of them were trying to buy and couldn't, but I mean the vast majority of and 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 we did survey after survey after survey when I was still in, in that industry, they're not looking to become buyers. They're renters by choice and they and they like the flexibility and they like the fact that you know, even even things that people don't think about, which is if you need a new roof, if you're a homeowner, that's a huge expense. If you're a renter, that's a huge expense to the owner and, and does nothing for your rent. So I just think, you know, we when I was there, we, we were involved with a lobbying group called the NRHC, the National Rental Housing Council. They have really, really good data around this and surveys. And, and but that's not really an interesting story for most people. Now, you're you're in you you know, as, as sort of, you know, housing wire in, in your in your area, it's very interesting. But broadly speaking to the general public, it's not interesting to say, hey, this company buys homes, maintains them well, charges a fair price and tries really hard to be a good landlord. <laughs> like that, there's just no there's no salacious angle to that. So it's much better to say, oh, you know, Wall Street's your landlord and you can't buy a home. But it's just not it's not based in reality. Yeah, maybe it makes us the boring media company, but we're not really in the business of salacious headlines either. We're, I mean, we're our mission has always been moving markets forward, and with the belief that a, a healthy and sustainable housing market builds a healthy and sustainable economy for American homeowners and uh, and renters too. So, uh, I mean, we 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 do believe in in balance in this market, and uh, our mission is to provide you know, information and perspectives and data that helps housing professionals um, like like yourself and folks on the purchase side to make better decisions. So um, maybe that costs yeah. us a couple, uh, a little bit of traffic every now and then when we don't go for the, the salacious angle, but hey, we'll, we'll do what we do. Um, <laughs> it, it makes it more interesting for, for those of us who are, enjoy real estate, though, to read it. Yeah. So we like we yeah. like your angle better. Yeah. I'm, I'm a lifer here. I want, I want to see uh, the housing industry keep uh, growing for the better. So, so Lucas, so I understand. Um, I mean, wh- when did you found Smart Rent? What year? 2017. Okay, 2017. So you're like you're in the fifth year of the business and you're already yeah. operating as a public company. Give us the... Yeah. Give us the download there. Get, how, how did this deal come to be? Well, so it, it's actually, it's a, a, a funny story because, you know, we hit this time where we went public via SPAC with a sponsor and literally about a month before we announced what we were doing, uh, we had had a board meeting where we had, we had largely written off the opportunity and said, let's actually head for a, a direct listing or a traditional IPO because there were two things that, that I didn't like and the board didn't like about SPACs in general. So one was most SPACs come with a lot of warrants. And so it's pretty expensive. If you actually look at the, the cost of the capital and, and you factor that in, it's pretty punitive. And, and so we didn't like that. And the, the, the second issue that we had is the sponsor, you know, who had, who had done the, the, the IPO and was looking to, to do the acquisition, a lot of times they didn't know, at least the calls I was getting, they didn't know a lot about my business, which is, to, as your point earlier, you know, it's not salacious, it's a niche business. It's sort of a very specific kind of a niche business. And so we, I feel like we got, uh, you know, we're incredibly fortunate that 
Fifth Wall, who was, uh, you know, the, the largest prop tech fund in the world, both domestically and now with their global fund and their clean, their clean climate tech fund, all these funds are massive prop tech company. All of their LPs are potential customers of ours. They decided to do us back. And I said, well, boy, they know a lot about my business. In fact, they're already on my cap table as an investor. And, and I, so I know them and I know that they can be helpful. And then the second piece was they did a, a warrantless SPAC. So our SPAC that we came public with had no warrants associated with it. And so in a lot of ways, the financial side of it looked more like a traditional IPO, but with the added benefit of, of being more closely aligned with, with Fifth Wall. And so those two things came together to, to say this is, this is too good of an opportunity to pass up. So did Fifth Wall do a warrantless structure because they were already on the cap table or because they were putting in additional equity into the deal? Like how, how did they find their upside? No, I mean, that that's where they wanted to come to market and be different from all the other SPACs that had come. So they, they brought on an incredibly senior team to run their SPAC business who said, the, like, to find the best companies, they actually won't won't do it with if, if it's a traditional structure. And so it had nothing to do with us. They had already launched the SPAC public without warrant. So it wasn't in particular to do with anything between Fifth Wall and Smart Run. It's just they knew that would be more attractive to the kind of company they wanted to attract. And they have a, they have a you know, top-notch team there that, that put that together. Did, did they join your cap table at Series A, or how long have they been kind of in, in the picture? They, they came in in my Series C, actually. Series um, C, okay. Yeah, so they were, they'd were they only been in our cap table for about a, a little over a year when we did did the announcement. Um, but they're the preeminent prop tech fund. They're a great a great group, and and we feel fortunate. Before that, we had you know the other the other group that, that I think is worth mentioning is Real Estate Technology Ventures. They led our A round, and then Bain Capital was in our B round. Spark led our C round. Spark Capital, but uh, Real Estate Technology Ventures, all of their LPs are apartment owners, and so uh, it's a very different different kind of a prop tech fund, very specific, very focused. But if anyone is looking to access the multifamily market. They're, they're an incredible fund. That's a phenomenal cat table. Congratulations. So in, oh, yeah. in, in, in that board meeting where you were talking about like, is a public path the right choice? What were like the, the operational priorities that you were looking to enable? Like what was the, what was the need for capital, whether it was organic or inorganic in, in growth opportunities that you were anticipating that made public markets attractive? Yeah. So it was, it was both primarily focused on how do we harvest this organic growth that's in front of us? You know, we had a very small team. We we're very nimble. Um, we've done a great job of getting of penetrating the largest REITs and bringing on the largest the largest owners of apartments in the country as customers. But there's a as you know there's there's a massive long tail in real estate, and so so it's say hey I can go get. I mean this is this is what's incredible to me is the top twenty owners in multifamily own one point four million units. The top twenty owners one point four million out of 29 million in the US alone. I mean that's the most fragmented market. I mean if you said if you said the top 20 airlines in the US own 10% of the air travel, you'd be like well they're not even top there are 20 airlines on that list, right? There's four that that own 90% of air travel. So so we knew to take to really go after this huge opportunity, we've proven that it worked with the largest REITs. Those are the thought leaders in the space. That's our best source of marketing is don't don't take my word for it. Take Essex's word for it, MAA, UDR, like take their word for it. Uh, don't don't listen to me. Go talk to them. Uh, but you need sales, marketing. You need all the other things that come along with it to go access that market. And then secondarily to that was we did feel that 
um, we had a very ambitious roadmap and it gave us the opportunity to grow inorganically, which we which we did. And so that's sort of maybe dovetailing into some of the other things we're going to talk about. But, you know, we acquired IQ and we acquired SitePlan um, to really make a much broader product roadmap, broader product offering and a really, really robust and comprehensive solution set. So that was the sort of go back to your <laughs> the, the question. That was the reason is to say, hey, we have an incredible opportunity right in front of us. And we also have the opportunity to to sell sell additional products to the same customer set. Interesting. I'm clicking into our FinLedger coverage of Housing Wire's prop tech brand um, on the acquisitions. And I see the smart rent deal, a maintenance services platform, site plan. Um, smart plan acquired maintenance service platinum site, site plan for 135 million. And uh, I don't I don't think the IQ deal was or I don't know if we caught that enterprise value in the in the article. Yeah. Is that one disclosed? That was not disclosed. So, uh, okay. you know, that, that, but but I think both both those companies were very similar, not in size, obviously, because <laughs> the price was different. But in terms of having the the what we were looking for and in, in bringing on companies is is first and foremost, a similar culture fit that. My background is from operations. A lot of the key team members, senior members, are from operations of multifamily um, and and site plan. You know, Terry Danner, who's the CEO of Site Plan, uh, he ran the the second largest fee management business in in the country uh, before they sold it to Graystar. He's been been in the industry forever. So I think what we saw is people who build tech because they were trying to solve a problem for themselves tend to have a more durable product than just trying to say, Hey, I, I'm going to build tech. Cause I think it, I think it's cool. And so, so it, 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 you know, those, those deals made us more durable, stronger, broader roadmap, broader product roadmap, and a great, great team as well. Tell us more about the, the capabilities that, that these two deals brought to your platform and, and, uh, and would love a behind the scene glimpse. If there was like a, a thought of like, Hey, can we get into the, um, get into the smart apartment management market organically, or is this something like we need to acquire our way into? And like, is it, was that a, I imagine that was a board conversation, right? Like, can we build this or does acquisition serve our clients faster? Yeah. So, so we absolutely have that discussion about everything. Should we, yeah. should we just go build it? I've got a great team of developers. You know, we, we've got our own R and D function and, and what we saw, this is the most interesting thing I think about this acquisition is with SitePlan, uh, we already had 39 shared customers. And those 39 customers owned a little over 2 million units. So we already had seen, and so our two companies on the tech side have been integrated for years. So it wasn't like, hey, let's let's put these companies together and now talk about integration. We've been working together for years. And so we sort of had a little bit of, of inside knowledge to say, hey, Smart rent works better with site plan and site plan works better with smart rent. And we just don't think that because we, we ran into each other at a trade show. We think that because we have 39 customers telling us that's the case. And so that's what drove it is to say, yeah, we could go build our own. Um, but, you know, and, and that was there was some discussion about that. But that would be 39 customers and 2 million units that would never want to look at our product because they have a great product. And then we'd be out competing with the, with this with this company. And so. It just made more sense from where we were, from the balance sheet, and from having the equity to say, let's fast forward instead of waiting, you know, two years to get to market. Let's fast forward. SitePlan's been around seven years. It's a very robust platform. It's, it's so it'd be very take a long time to go build that. You know what I'm saying? Like it's not like hey, it, it, they're a two year old company. We could catch up with them. Take a long time to get there. And by the way, not only do we know it works well with our current product. We love their team and their team. Now we're, we're a combined team looking at how do we grow this overall rental platform? 
Interesting. So had you done any deals uh, on the acquisition front prior to the IPO? And uh, yeah, any, any deals prior to IPO? We had, yeah, we acquired a, a, a hardware manufacturing company that was one of our contract manufacturers. Uh, and we had, we had brought them on uh, in, internal. Um, that was bef- very fortuitous. I didn't know that a year after after that we'd be in this this supply chain disruption, this hardware issues we're having. So it's great to have them in the fold. But that, so that so that was the only acquisition we'd done prior to, to being uh, having public capital. Interesting. I mean, so it kind of three deals in, kind of kind of in the DNA at, at this point. How do you look at the the path forward? Do you think there's a future M and A on you know acquiring competitors or other capabilities that you think are are important to have in the fold? Or how do you think about that path? Yeah, I, I think well, two things I'd want to kind of share with you. One is we have a a habit in multifamily, there's a few other companies out there that have a habit of, of buying and never integrating, <laughs> just continuing to buy, and they forget to do the hard work of the integration. And so we want to be a, a real direct counter to that, which is to say, we're working really hard on integration first. And so uh, you, won't, you won't see us uh, hitting the headlines with that headline anytime soon. But, but broadly speaking, yes, there's still incredible opportunities I think prop tech was incredibly hot. Growth was incredibly hot. Um, the market has moved away from that for a variety of reasons. And I think the one good part of that from where I sit, <laughs> because it, it hurt our it hurt our stock, which I don't like. But the good part of that is that it's also now bringing de- deals that were sort of out of reach or, or what we kind of deemed too expensive, bringing them back into, into a sphere where you might be interested to, to get a transaction done. Yeah, that's um, yeah. I think house, stocks across the housing industry, whether it's mortgage, real estate, fintech, prop tech, have uh, you know t- taken a little hit. I mean, which is challenging to like use public equity to 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 do deals when the when the stock is hit. But um, but a lot of the great companies in our space have been built during times of of market shift. And I, I kind of yeah. talk about that often in the the mortgage industry. Some of the the biggest winners in loan origination software platforms and valuation platforms and uh, and property data have, have all kind of made massive or monumental market share shifts during um, market dislocations or or recessions. It, it sounds like the rental market is holding up extremely well. And, um, and, I, and I hope that I hope that can continues, but does this shift in the market right now, this, this kind of uncertainty and in real estate, does that change? Like, does that create any opportunities for you? Like, do you see any like open doors or like have any strategies that might, might help you gain market share and, and use like your position of strength to come out stronger? Yeah, I I think, I I think one of the things that's been really interesting is, is this, as we've seen labor move away from us, one of the most challenging things in multifamily has always been to hire leasing consultants. It's a very high turnover job. It's it's relatively low wages. It, it's it's in line with sort of fast food wages. Very hard person to hire. And this is your brand ambassador. So you also want them to be very articulate and and be selling your product. They're your sales team. And so, you know, we've seen a real shift. It started with the pandemic where we had to actually close our leasing offices. But that's where owners and multifamily finally realized what we had always known in single family, which is, you know, what your what your prospect really wants anyway is to take a self guided tour. And so, so we can pre qualify you, uh, eliminate a lot of different types of, of fraud that you may be trying to perpetrate, and then let you go on site and take a tour at, at your leisure and and at your own pace. And and 
not only is that beneficial to the owner, who now has less labor challenges and less labor costs, it, that's prospects and, and then future residents actually prefer it. And that's what you see when you do the survey data and say is that that was actually a better experience. And so yeah, that's just one one sort of anecdote of, of, of five or six where we're seeing real shift in this industry that we haven't seen in, in a long time. Yeah, that's that's interesting. We um, I was just thinking of uh, the nominations for our, our Housing Wire Tech 100 award program and remember that Smart Rent was a, a winner for the, our real estate category this past year. But what, what, I've, got it, I've got it in my window right nice, here. Nice, nice. Yeah. We'll, we'll make sure we mention that in the show notes. But um, one of the things that popped for me this year for the first time going through all the nominations for mortgage and real estate is a heavy emphasis on cost reduction for clients and, and helping clients be more efficient, whether the end market is mortgage lenders, servicers, capital markets, real estate brokers, or multifamily landlords. And uh, I'm I'm really eager to see the nominations next year and hear and hear about did this um, this is strategy of uh, focusing on cost elimination and cost efficiency um, work and uh, did did housing companies across the spectrum um, kind of start to realize some of the benefits that technology should bring. And, you know, it's a tough conversation because, you know, efficiency, at least in mortgage, usually means headcount reduction. And, and we're seeing that pretty broadly right now. But the only like the big positive I look to is a housing economy that is more elastic and more efficient and can grow and contract without massive changes in headcount, which is which has plagued the housing industry as long as it's existed. And uh, for me, that is the promise of technology. It should be, yeah. And I think, I think certainly it's more pronounced in, in mortgage origination than in multifamily. But even one of the antidotes, one of, because I kind of brought that up with one of our customers, kind of like you're saying, it's like, oh, it is, you know, it's great that we're more efficient. It's great that, re- that prospects like it. But, you know, we are, we are removing jobs. And, and he kind of looked at me like, we're not removing jobs. We're removing job wrecks I can't fill. <laughs> and and oh. what we're doing is instead of saying, hey, there's 10 people and eight of them are always churning, there's four people and they're paid to have it be a career now. So which is sort of your point, which is it, it, you take something and you say, we're not eliminating humans or saying we don't need humans. We're saying we need fewer of them. And that means I can actually pay them better and have lower turnover, which is great for everyone. So I, I do think there's sort of a silver lining to technology. It's not about, you know, welcoming our robot overlords. It's really about saying, how do we how do we take something that's sort of transactional, like being a leasing agent and make it a career as a property manager? That, yeah, that's like, that's spot on. I love that you worked in not uh, bring in our robot overlords. That's a that might be quotable. Maybe that's our intro here. <laughs> <laughs> so, there you go. so Lucas, I, I want to come back to the, the very beginning of our conversation to wrap this up. And I know um, uh, if you, when you're in a, a neighborhood happy hour or uh, or barbecue, um, folks know you're in the housing industry, and I'm sure you get asked, "How's the housing market?" from From your perspective, like, how do you answer that? Like, we're taking into account all the different dynamics that we talked about in the beginning of rental and, and purchase and changes. Like, how do you answer the the simple question of how's the housing market for your for your neighbor when you're when you're cooking hot dogs? Well, yeah, and it, and it is it is something that I that I I've been told I need to have a little bit nicer answer because I'm more like what you're saying about John Burns is like I can't answer that question. That's like saying how's the weather, like. The weather where and what am I doing? You know what I mean? Like, like, I, like, I, I don't know how to answer that. Just that's too broad. You know, it's like saying, what's the sky? Like, I don't know. What are we talking about? We need to we need to narrow it down because because you're exactly right. I mean, it, 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 are we talking about mortgage origination? 
it's it's tough. It's tough sailing right now, right? Are we talking about rentals? No, rentals, we have a lot of robust demand. And then, by the way, so let, even in that, you could say, well, now let's go down into what about in this zip code or what about in this zip plus four? And there, there's different characteristics. So I think part of what I try to do with people who aren't in real estate is help them understand that that real estate is a very broad term like like manufacturing and that actually to really have an interesting conversation we have to get more specific and i can't just give you sort of a, a, a thumbs up thumbs down on something so broad so i know that's not really a great sort of pithy answer but that that's where it's like it's one of, it is one of my pet peeves of like what do you mean? How's the housing market? Like, like I, I, I can't possibly answer that. All right, warning, folks. If you bump into Lucas at a bar, don't ask him how's the housing market because the conversation is not going to go the direction you hoped. Yeah, ask me. Ask me how rents are doing in my zip code. I will have a long conversation with you about that. <laughs> Lucas, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate your perspectives on the the rental market, the broader housing market, and for as a as an operator. An investor, really fascinating to learn about your your path in in starting, building, and taking public uh, smart rent. It's been fun. Great, yeah. Thank you, Clayton. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. Bam! Now that is a wrap of this week's episode of the Housing News Podcast. Do me a huge favor and go to iTunes and rate this show. And if you leave a comment, you better tune in next week because you might get a shout out. Thank you.